the year 2018 was a good year. For me, because it was the year that I married my bride. For many others in Los Angeles, it was a great year because it was the year that LeBron James became a Laker. Uh, I am not much of a basketball fan, uh, but if someone were to force me to watch the sport, then I would probably watch the Lakers. Uh, and of course, in grade school, I grew up, you know, rooting for Kobe in the Kobe-LeBron debate era. Uh, <clears throat> but it was still really strange seeing LeBron become a Laker. It was announced. I saw the uh, pictures of him in the Lakers jersey, which was strange. This happens really anytime you have a major uh, athlete switch teams, right? I think the same thing happened with Tom Brady to the Buccaneers, Messi to Inter-Miami. I'm like, what's going on? Is this, is this a fake picture? I want to actually see him play. And it's not really until you actually see them play on their new team that it becomes more believable. They're not only dressed in the team's gear, but playing with the new team, sometimes even playing against the old team, helping the new team win. Well, in the Bible, uh, becoming a Christian is like joining a different team. It's like putting on a new jersey. Uh, instead of playing for an old manager, which the Bible would call Satan, the ruler of this world, instead, Christians play for the Lord. Uh, but Christians don't just put on a jersey. Uh, they don't just look different. They perform different. They live differently. Uh, imagine uh, if when LeBron came to the Lakers in 2018... He started out in the Laker uniform, and once the play began, he turned around and shooted on his own basket, scoring points for the other team. That would be strange. Sadly, it's not uncommon for us to hear stories of people who claim to be on God's team while shooting baskets for Satan. They wear the jersey of Christianity, but their heart still belongs to the world. What does the Bible have to say about uh, what a Christian should look like in the world? How a Christian uh, should act and live? How can we know a genuine believer when we see one? Well, our sermon text this morning answers these questions. As Paul encourages the Galatian Christians to live as they have been called. They have put on the jersey of Christian, though they are being tempted to continue playing for themselves. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find our passage on page 975. 975. Uh, this is the end of the chapter. And so far in chapter 5, Paul has basically been reminding the Galatians that they are free in Christ. They're no longer slaves to sin as they once were. But because of their faith in Jesus, they have been freed from the bondage of sin to new life. This is in response, Paul's writings are in response to the false apostles that are telling them that to be a Christian, to be a part of the family of God, they have to submit to Mosaic law. And Paul instead tells them to stand firm in their freedom to live like those who have been set free, that to submit to the law would be to return to slavery. 
according to the Apostle Paul, requiring law observance for salvation was to remove grace from the equation. It was to believe a different gospel altogether, not that there is one, as he says. It was to make Christ's sacrifice of no value. Therefore, to submit to the law for righteousness was to return to slavery, since no one is righteous. No one actually meets the standards of the law. Oh, look back up at verse 1 of chapter 5. You'll see his exhortation. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Then down in verse 13, he says again, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, you might be tempted to think, since we aren't required to obey the law, then it doesn't matter how we live. We can live however we want. Uh, that's what is referred to today as antinomianism, anti-namas, anti-law. Paul corrects that conclusion that Christians should use their newfound freedom to indulge in sinful desires. But our verses this morning just pick up where that conversation left off. These, these verses continue this exhortation to live like they are free in Christ. And we get a good description of what that means, what it looks like. The summary is that Christians, while we don't submit to the law, should be different from the world, should be distinct. Believers who are brought to life by the work of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ should then live according to the Spirit's work in them. Therefore, Paul spells out the things that should characterize Christians, along with the ongoing internal battle with sin that all believers face. Uh, this passage is both deeply cherished and greatly feared. And I think you'll see why when we read through it. Now let's read our passage together now. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. Paul says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you're taking notes, I think the main idea of this passage is this. Christians are not free from the struggle with sin. Christians are not free from the struggle with sin. 
but their life should demonstrate the Spirit's presence within them. Christians are not free from struggle with sin, but their life should demonstrate the Spirit's presence within them. Therefore, live by the Spirit. Therefore, live by the Spirit. Uh, Paul's encouragement to the Galatians is basically to live according to the call that they have received. Uh, Since they have been given life by the Spirit, they should continue to walk or live by the Spirit. That's what it means when he says walk by the Spirit. It's, It's a way of describing the way you live your life. Believers who read this passage today can take the same encouragement and instruction. So I have three points for you this morning to look at this passage. Uh, First, I want to talk a little bit about the war within that Paul describes uh, in every believer in verses 16 through 18. Uh, Then we'll spend time thinking about the works of the flesh laid out in verses 19 through 21. And then thirdly, we'll look at the fruits of the Spirit in 22 through 20. Four. Uh, the last few verses summarize and restate Paul's initial encouragement in verse 16. My prayer is that these verses would encourage you to live by the Spirit and to put to death the works of the flesh. Uh, if you're here this morning and you know yourself uh, to be a slave to the flesh in one way or another, uh, then my prayer is that you would find the kind of freedom that Paul describes here in your own life that you would look to Christ and be set free, who alone is able to free us from our sins. So first, the war within. The war within. In verses 16 through 18, Paul explains that there are two opposing forces at play. There are the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. Christianity has always taught that there are two types of people in the world. Uh, You know, it's interesting, all all humanity is created equally with dignity and value as made in the image of God, and all humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet there are some sinners that are saved, and there are some that are not. There are those who put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and there are others who trust other things. Uh, Those who have the Son have life, those who do not have the Son do not have life life. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find that those who believe in Jesus for salvation go through a radical transformation. Their lives completely change as the Holy Spirit occupies their hearts and changes desires from within. Jesus described this in John 3 when he said, you must be born again. He calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Uh, That is to die to themselves and instead follow Him as the Lord and Master of their life. Uh, When someone professes faith in Christ, that inner transformation is then publicly displayed or represented in the act of baptism, symbolizing submerging under the waters as uh, death, getting put under the ground, and then raising up to new life, new life in Christ. One of the things that Jesus said was that his followers would look very different from the rest of the world. They'd be distinct and recognizable, salt and light. Uh, And there's a number of ways that the world will know a believer when they see one. He says by our love for each other in the local church. And he says also by the fruit in our lives. Uh, Matthew 7, Jesus said, you can tell the kind of tree 
by its fruit. It's perhaps one of the best illustrations I think Jesus uses, if I can say something like that. It's one of my favorites, I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, because who here has ever looked at a tree full of oranges and said, hmm, I wonder what kind of tree that is? Pretty obvious what kind of tree it is. It's an orange tree. Uh, nor has anyone ever plucked an apple off of an apple tree and said, this is great. I wonder what kind of fruit this tree is going to yield next season. Uh, well, maybe it'll yield bananas. Probably not. You know it to be an apple tree. Uh, you don't take a lemon and squeeze it and expect pomegranate juice to come out. Uh, you know the stuff that's inside it. It is visible and obvious. It's clear. And Jesus says that you'll know a Christian by the way he lives. The way a Christian lives will make the genuineness of their faith obvious. A Christian will produce the fruit of Christ. And what Paul has to say in these verses is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Of course, Christians, we don't do this perfectly. We don't do it perfectly. If it were required for Christians uh, to yield the fruit perfectly, then that would disqualify all of us. That's not the case. But those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ have been changed from the inside out. And no amount of external acts can make that change of the heart. Uh, Christians have undergone this internal change, and that change redirects the way we live. It's possible that you have had the expectation that Christians should not have any sin in their lives. Well, Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we're liars. The truth is not in us. Well, I bring all this up to simply say, uh, to say a believer never sins, uh, again, would rule us all out. There's only one person who's never sinned. It's Christ. Uh, that's why His sacrifice is the only one that can atone for us, the only place where we can find forgiveness. It's not as though Christians never produce bad fruit, but the generally speaking, the fruit of the Spirit should dominate our lives. The call to follow Christ is a call to holiness, to a holy life. Not as, of course, the way that you become saved, but as a result of being saved. What Paul says in verses 16 through 18 is that we should expect war within us with our sin. Even while Christians are to live radically different lives from the world, we're not exempt from the desires and temptations of the world. The old life still calls to us. It's not easy to live a holy life. Uh, Paul explains to us why it's hard to walk in the Spirit. Because the desires of the flesh run contrary to them. Believers are saved from their sins and look forward to the day that we are remade perfectly, completely, but we still live in a sinful world with finite bodies. So what's the purpose of Paul's exhortation? It must be that walking by the Spirit is not something that just happens automatically while we do nothing. Producing this fruit is made possible by the Spirit. Uh, but it is something that we must continue to fight and strive for as well. It's something we war over. Uh, friends, great wars are not won passively, but strategically and at great cost. What Paul is telling the Galatians is that walking in the Spirit, walking according to the freedom 
will be no walk in the park. It will be war. Because the desires of the flesh are still present in this life, and they are directly opposed to the Spirit's work in your life. The result is they keep you from doing what you want to do. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 18. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In other words, Paul is explaining to them what it means to be free. It means that the works of the flesh, which defined you before you came to Christ, no longer hold you captive. They no longer condemn you before a holy God, because Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. For believers, the battle rages on, but the outcome has been decided. The Spirit will triumph over the flesh ultimately. Dear friends, that truth should cause us to confidently charge into battle against our sin. Recognizing the Spirit is not only opposed to the flesh, but that it will be victorious over it ultimately. Just a few points of application for us, considering the war within. Uh, to apply this to our lives. If you haven't already, wage war with sin. Declare war against your sin. This means, I think, strategize. Come up with some kind of battle plan. Enlist others in your troops. Arm yourself with the word of God and prayer. Uh, When a country goes to war, they pool their resources. And how foolish would it be to Go into a war not expecting some kind of conflict. So, brothers and sisters, we should expect that conflict in our lives as well. Uh, Another way to uh, uh, strategize and enlist others in your troops, if we're going to keep using that image, is to simply immerse yourself in the local church. Uh, Christ gave us, brothers and sisters, uh, to walk alongside each other, uh, to help each other in our walk with Christ. Therefore, immerse yourself in the local church. This will be a great time to plug our membership uh, matters equip hour that's coming up in just a few weeks. We're going to be meeting from 9.15 to 10.15 here. Uh, We've encouraged members to come as just a kind of refresher uh, for what we believe as a church and what we think Scripture teaches about how we're to live together. Uh, If you're interested in that, you don't require to join the church by coming to those classes. But that would be a great way to simply understand more about what it means to be a member of a local church. Uh, So let me just encourage you to come to that. A second point of application. Expect strong opposition to godly living. Expect strong opposition to godly living. Living Opposition has many different forms. Sometimes it is as strong as things like persecution. Other times it is uh, simply a life of leisure that seduces Christians into a life of neglecting their spiritual growth. Uh, But simply feeling the tug of the world does not mean uh, that you're not a Christian. It means you're human and aware of your sinful nature. Use the Spirit's awareness that is given to you to expect opposition and to fight against it. Third point of application. Uh, If you are here and you desire to have the kind of freedom from your sin that's described, and you've never turned from your sin and trust in Christ, don't delay another day, friends. Uh, Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Uh, Turn from your sin and trust in Christ and His work on the cross and his resurrection, 
Only by his sacrifice can we truly be forgiven. It is not our own works that make us acceptable to God. It is Christ's. Therefore, we must rely on him wholly and completely. Uh, Many make the mistake of assuming that Christians have everything figured out in their life. Uh, That is not the case. Uh, Christians will continue to struggle with sin. Uh, So don't let that withhold you from coming to Christ either. These other things, these secondary matters, the things you're working out in your life, can be dealt with over time. Don't delay in coming to Christ. He came to save sinners like you and like me. Well, that's the war within. Uh, Point two is the works of the flesh, defined in verses 19 through 21. This is basically Paul explaining what does slavery look like? What does slavery look like? After explaining the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, Paul then explains the differences between the two. Uh, What does it uh, look like? What is someone characterized by who is given over to the works of the flesh as opposed to someone who is filled with the spirit? The first thing he says about the works of the flesh is that they are evident. What he means by that is they're obvious. They're apparent. Anyone can look at this list laid out by Paul and agree that these are not good qualities to have. Uh, Now, of course, you can play devil's advocate and uh, debate this, but I would say these things are pretty obviously bad things, and they transcend cultures too. Most cultures agree that drunkenness is a bad thing. When Paul says the works of the flesh are evident, he means they're obviously wicked. And he also means that they're easily recognized in someone's life. These things, they speak for themselves. If you give your life over to alcohol enough then, as an example, you'll eventually become a drunk. If you're someone who causes strife with others, then you'll find it difficult to build deep relationships. People will find it difficult to embrace you as a friend. When someone is truly a slave to the works of the flesh, they're not hard to spot. So the works of the flesh are both intuitive for us to recognize as evil, and they are also observable as rotten fruit on a tree. That's what Paul means when he says the works of the flesh are evident. The word Paul uses here, evident, could actually also be translated as revealing. They're revealing. The works of the flesh, they reveal themselves. They show the heart of a person who commits them. Jesus said a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. I have a friend who became a believer because the Spirit used this passage to reveal his sin to him. He wasn't sure he was a Christian and his pastor was wise. And so his pastor had him read through this passage. And he asked a simple question. Does your life look more like the first list? Or the second list. He realized very quickly that his life could be basically summed up by a number of of the things listed on the first list. Multiple works of the flesh. And so right away he saw desperately his need for forgiveness. But I also know that for many Christians, these are difficult verses to read. Because like I said earlier, none of us are without sin. I'm guessing you can point to a few of these things on this list and say, that's me. I've done that. For the sensitive conscience, especially the works of the flesh, might feel much louder in your life than the fruits of the Spirit. 
For many of these verses call them to question their salvation, especially because what Paul says at the end of verse 21, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're looking at this list and you're wondering, will what Paul says in verse 21 be true of me? My answer to you this morning is maybe. Maybe. The question is, what will you do in response? What lengths will you go to to ensure that Paul is not talking about you here? We're going to talk about that more throughout the rest of the sermon. But there's a few things that I think we can learn from the list that Paul provides here. First, notice just how many of these vices are sexual. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies. All of these are works of the flesh that greatly hinder the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I can say as a pastor, I can't think of another category of sin that is as damaging as sexual immorality, as gripping especially on our culture than sexual sins today. The word Paul uses here is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it's used to describe all kinds of acts of sexual morality. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, really anything outside of the context of God's design in marriage. Wrapped within these acts of sin is lust, the thing that leads to them. These works of the flesh, they will make a slave out of you. Paul also mentions sensuality. An older word that used to be used in our translation was the word debauchery. We don't use that very much in our language today, but the definition is helpful. It's extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures, especially sexual. It's just a lack of any kind of restraint when it comes to your desires. With anything on this list, Paul is, again, not saying that if you've ever committed any of these things, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. But when he speaks about being a slave, you must ask yourself, does this thing dominate my life? Do I submit to these things as if they are my master? Am I regularly giving in to the desires of my flesh so much that I can say that this sin owns me? Christian, you have to be honest with yourself. Have you mastered these desires Or have these desires mastered you? I think it's uh, appropriate that I be really clear on this point. Uh, So just allow me to speak plainly for a few minutes. Uh, If you're someone who watches porn daily or even weekly, I would say, uh, then you're a slave to lust. That sin is dominating your life. Uh, If you're regularly sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, Uh, then you're a slave to lust. Uh, If you're married and you have an inappropriate relationship with someone other than your spouse, I think even emotionally or physically, uh, then you're likely a slave to that sin, to those desires. God values purity, friends. Purity is good for us. A healthy marriage is God's God-given outlet for your desires. So pursue healthy intimacy if you're married. It's God's gift to protect you from sexual immorality. So be with your spouse regularly. Accept, 
if necessary, for a short time to pray, is what Scripture says elsewhere. These things might be uncomfortable, but you can't put sin to death if you don't see it for what it is. You won't win the battle against the enemy if you're a hostage locked up in a prison cell. You must be free. A friend, if you're single here, trust that purity will bring better satisfaction and joy in the long run. You have to believe God's promise about that. Use the gift of singleness he's given you to devote your life wholly to him. Well, that's one category, sexual sins. Another category is idolatry. Paul, of course, mentions idolatry, and any one of these things could be an idol of ours. Uh, But specifically, he says idolatry and sorcery. Uh, Sorcery or witchcraft would be those who went to mediums uh, to hear their fortune or to hear the future told or something like that. Uh, And I think the main thing here is these are people who seek uh, some kind of direction in their life from an authority other than God. Uh, They seek to put other things in the place where only God should be. It's to be unhappy with God's authority, uh, to seek satisfaction or direction from something other than our maker. Uh, we, need to be, we need to beware uh, that we don't look to the world for the things that God alone provides. Uh, Christian, is there something in your life that you feel like you just couldn't be happy if the Lord took it away from you? Is there something that you think you'll never be satisfied until you get this one thing, material possession, certain kind of job, perhaps a spouse, kids, uh, any number of things could be listed? Do you need the culture to agree with Scripture before you accept the moral position that Scripture lays out? Friends, these things are idolatry. It's to give something artificial authority and importance in life instead of God. The rest of the list could be described as community sins, sins that are committed against others in a community. Uh, These works of the flesh, they directly threaten unity. So enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, These are relationship killers. Uh, One who is a slave to these kinds of sins wreck relationships in their life. Uh, These sins are driven by selfishness and they wreak havoc against others. Uh, They go directly against love for our neighbor. So friends, we should ask ourselves, could your life be characterized by one of these community sins? If we are habitually selfish, the works of the flesh dominate our lives, and we'll be unable to love others. You know, Paul has lists like these in most of his letters, but this one is not an exhaustive list. I don't think any of his lists are exhaustive. Notice he concludes at the end of the list, and things like these which means there are many other works of the flesh that we could probably think of that he's not listed here. He's not providing a checklist for us. He's painting a portrait of someone who is characterized by the works of the flesh, someone whose life is given over to them. I'm guessing everyone here can see ourselves in some of these sins. Of course we do. But the question is, is this sin a habit 
in my life? Now look through the list again. Just take a few minutes. Which one do you struggle with most? And with that sin in mind, ask yourself, is my life marked by this thing? Is my life marked by this thing? If you live in that sin without regular repentance, Paul's uh, warning is clear and we should take it to heart. Jesus might not be your savior. But we need not despair. None of the things listed in this vice list are unforgivable. Christ came to forgive any and all of these sins. The Christian is not someone who never does these things. He's one that struggles against these things. So another question you can ask is, am I struggling against this thing? Or am I just giving into it and letting it rule my life? Christians instead, they struggle, they run to Jesus in repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, resist the flesh. It's opposed to the Spirit. Embrace Christ as your master, not the desires of your flesh. Oh, that brings me to point three. The fruits of the Spirit, verses 22 through the end. Uh, This is basically Paul explaining, what does freedom look like? If now we know what slavery looks like, what does freedom look like? The fruits of the Spirit. Paul's encouragement to the Galatians is to live like they are free, and he warns them not to gratify the flesh, So the question is, what does it look like to walk by the Spirit? And that's why Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 through 23. And we should not miss the fact, friends, that these are called fruits. They are fruits of the Spirit. They're not our works. In other words, they are evidences of the Spirit's presence in our life. They are not the things that save us, but when we are saved, they are the things that show up in our life as a result of the Spirit's presence. Uh, I heard a story this past week about a mother who was driving in her car uh, with a little girl in the back seat. And this little girl uh, was old enough to be out of a car seat. And uh, the little girl would stand up while in the car uh, while they were driving through town. And so the mother, of course, uh, instructed the daughter, sit down in your seat, buckle your seatbelt. And she... Uh, sit down for a minute or two, and then two minutes later, she would get right back up and be standing again. And so the mother would then say more urgently, I'm driving the car, sit down, buckle your seatbelt. And so the child would do it, and then a few minutes go by, and the child's up again. Uh, So then uh, the parent says, sit down now, or you're going to get a consequence. And the child sits down, buckles her seatbelt. And the daughter, the little girl, says to the mother, I'm in my seat but I'm still standing in my heart. And then I think there's a helpful depiction for us. Uh, Regardless of how we live, our hearts need change. Uh, Prior to Christ, our hearts are in rebellion against God. It's what what comes from within that defiles us. Uh, But when the Spirit comes, uh, that posture towards God of rebellion is changed. Uh, Scripture says, heart of stone turns to heart of flesh. Uh, He changes our hearts uh, from the inside. So it's not just simply a matter of doing things on the outside, uh, but our hearts must be changed. 
None of us are good on our own. None of us are able to be characterized by a list like the fruits of the Spirit apart from the gracious work of Christ in our lives. These fruits, then, are not our own efforts to prove ourselves as godly. They are simply the things you expect to be present in the life of a believer. Just like you know a tree tree by its fruit, you know a spirit-filled individual by the activity of the Spirit in their life. Believers are different from the rest of the world because the presence of the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside. And we see that with the very first few things that Paul lists here. Love, joy, and peace. Uh, Each of these are a result of a heart that has been changed by the gospel. Uh, Love, there's not really a discernible order to this list, from what I can tell. Uh, But oftentimes, love comes first in these kinds of virtue lists, especially in Paul. He wrote that great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, if I have the tongues of many angels, uh, but not love, I am a clanging cymbal. Uh, love regularly comes up first because it's so foundational. A heart that has experienced the love of God will be filled with love towards others. Uh, when one understands that there's no greater act of love than a man laying down his life for their friend. And then when we realize that Jesus laid down his life for his enemies which we were. Oh, friends, we can't help but overflow with love for God and love for others as a result. Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much love much, and we have been forgiven of so much. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. Paul says in verse 14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you've believed in Jesus and you love others, you'll fulfill the purpose of the law in your life, what it was given for, to point us to Christ and to help us to love our neighbor. John says that if we say we love God and we hate our brother, then we are liars. We love because he first loved us. And then joy. Christians are characterized by joy because God has taken our sorrow away. He has separated us from our guilt and shame as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103 says, so far as he removed our sin from us. And it will never again return. We experience it in our life, but it will not be held against us on judgment day when we stand before a holy God. We are full of joy because we don't deserve such grace. Yet we have been shown it. We have received it. A Christian should be the most joyful and peaceful people in the world because we worship the God of peace. And he has set his love on us for eternity. Uh, Christians, it's okay to be sad. (laughs) Uh, Sadness is, I think, an emotion uh, that we can experience rightly. Sorrow and grief are part of the normal Christian experience, especially as we live in a sinful and broken world. Uh, We should weep 
for the lostness like Christ wept for Jerusalem. And yet, no matter the situation, the Christian can still be joyful because we know that nothing can separate us from his love. We have that promise from Romans 8. Uh, The Christian can proclaim, even on the darkest day, that our joy comes from the creator of the universe, not our circumstances. Sickness and death and war may consume this life, but heaven is a world of love and peace forever. Our eternal inheritance is stored up for us and cannot be taken away. This is why there are verses in Scripture like Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Many of the fruits of the Spirit are community virtues, ones that you'll find characterize the local church throughout Scripture. Contrast these for just a moment with the works of the flesh. Patience, kindness, goodness. You can't be given over to fits of rage and be a patient person. right? You can't cause strife and also be characterized by kindness. You can't give yourself over to drunkenness or orgies and be characterized by self-control. These describe someone who bears with others, patience, kindness, and goodness. Christians are to be patient, which assumes bearing with others weaker than us. It means trusting in the goodness of others when they speak difficult truths into our lives, uh, even if they speak it clumsily. Kindness receives and gives encouragement to others in their walk with Christ. Goodness seeks to come alongside others. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit changes how we relate to one another and defines us as the family of God. It causes us to treat others as more important than ourselves. Can you actually say that about your life? Do you consider others as more important than yourself? Uh, We're commanded to love others as we love ourselves. And I think that command is given because we love ourselves so much. right? But brothers and sisters, how are you doing relating to others, especially here in the local church? Are you patient? Are you kind? Good? What is your best fruit of the Spirit and what is your worst fruit of the Spirit? If you had to pick. Perhaps at lunch or afterwards with the cookies and coffees through those double doors, uh, you can have conversations where you encourage each other about the fruits of the Spirit you know in your life and also in the ones that you want to grow in in the future. Uh, Ask each other for help in practical ways uh, of knowing how uh, to grow in these areas. Uh, Then there's also fruits of individual composure, faithfulness, loyalty, Matching God's faithfulness and covenant love towards us. Gentleness, self-control, both are a result of a humble and teachable person. Self-control especially requires discipline. Christians then are to exercise restraint as part of what it means to walk in the Spirit. Someone who is self-controlled is not a slave to their flesh. They are disciplined. Friends, what 
area of your life requires more discipline. The fruits of the Spirit, they all sound too ideal. Uh, Perhaps you're reading these, getting discouraged over the amount of room you have to grow. Uh, Let me just remind you again, this is not a, a kind of heaven checklist. You won't perfectly display these things in your life. Uh, but we should generally be characterized by them. Uh, They should also point us to Christ where we fall short, to the one who is perfectly loving and kind and patient and faithful. Remember that these are not our works, but the fruits of His Spirit. Whatever is good in us is because of His goodness, not, not ours. No law is held against the fruits of the Spirit. So how can we do as Paul says and be sure that we are keeping in step with the Spirit? Uh, And what do we do if we feel we're losing the battle to our sin? A few points of application uh, to answer that before we close. First, uh, if you are feeling this way, feeling the burden of your works of the flesh, praise and thank God for that. It is a good thing. There are so many people in the world who are not bothered at all by their sin. Uh, They don't feel their sin at all. Uh, There are many who might even be aware, but they embrace it. Uh, They enjoy it even. They simply don't care. So praise and thank God. I submit to you that the concern for the state of your soul is a remarkable work of the Spirit in your life, a sign of His activity in your heart. So pray and ask the Spirit to continue working in your heart if that's you. Let this passage be like a prick of your finger for a spiritual blood test. Pray over these verses and ask God to produce these fruits of the Spirit within you. Second, How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. Crucify it. Don't coddle it. Crucifixion, remember, is probably the most gruesome way uh, to put someone to death. And I think that strong language is helpful for us. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Meaning, if you believe in Jesus, your sin has been nailed to the cross with Him. What we need to do now is to act like it. Continue to put it to death. Jesus told His followers to take up their cross and follow Him. That means die to the old self with the old desires, the old passions like we read earlier in the service. The things that defined you before becoming a Christian, and instead live like the new person. Uproot the works of the flesh like weeds. Uh, They're going to keep coming back. Uh, We know this every time it rains, which seems like it's been a lot lately. Uh, Weeds just keep springing up overnight. Sometimes they spring up in the exact same place, sometimes in new places, and the same is going to be true of sin for the believer. Friends, Uproot them, but know that the life of a Christian is continual uprooting, continually putting sins to death. Uh, Another way of crucifying the flesh, uh, speaking specifically, since I mentioned it earlier so specifically, 
Banish pornography from your life. It has no place in your life. Banish it. Christ is a better master. How else do we crucify the sins or the works of the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. Uh, Confess sins to others. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, that's a beautiful promise from Scripture. Uh, Let's just keep reminding it. Uh, Let's keep reminding each other of it as we're confessing sins to one another. Uh, Ask others to hold you accountable. Take notes during sermons. Yes, I just said that. Take notes and then review them because attentive listening, we believe here that God has spoken to us in his word, that it is without error and authoritative with everything that it says. And therefore, we know that if we are going to change for the better, it's going to be because of God's word and work in our lives. So take notes when you come to listen to the teaching of God's word. Pray with the church. Another plug for our evening service, which happens to be this evening, uh, the first Sunday of every month at 5 p.m. Friends, prayer is powerful. And there's something special and unique when brothers and sisters come together and pray together. And I think that kind of immersion in the community of the church is going to help you crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Lastly, how do we crucify the flesh? Arm yourself with the Word of God. Arm yourself with the Word of God. Meditate day and night. I can't help but think of Psalm 1. And I want to read it. Go ahead and turn there so you can set your eyes on it as well. Psalm 1. Also describes uh, someone who lives and displays the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Arm yourself with the Word of God. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Brothers and sisters, arm yourself with the word of God. There are two ways to live. Uh, To walk by the Spirit keep in step with the Spirit, or to walk by the flesh. Believers will be at war against the Spirit. But by God's, by God's grace, the Spirit enables us to bear fruit and to keep in step with the Spirit. And just in case we are tempted to be proud of ourselves when we think we're successful, Paul adds a final warning not to become conceited in verse 26. The answer for how we are to fight against the work of the flesh is exactly what Paul encourages, to walk by the Spirit. And if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Friends, the last thing to say here is 
Praise God that he has not left us to this task on our own. Praise God that he has given us a helper, his very own spirit.